All right. Welcome. My name is Ben. I'm the pastor here. We are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. Uh, leave it to Josh Button to lead us in worship. It's just supremely God-focused. Guys, we just sang um, holy, holy, holy. Holy is like a God word. It's a word that we don't use apart from when we talk about God, and that's absolutely right. Because there is no appropriate use for the word holy other than God and the things of God. We sing things like, holy, there is no one like you, there is none beside you. Because that's what holiness is. That God is unlike anyone or anything else. That's why we praise Him. That's who He is. We also sing in, holy, in the first song, holy, holy, holy. Uh, uh, what do we sing? I had it. Um, there... Um, only you are holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power, love, and purity. He's holy because he alone is perfect in love and purity, something like that. But that's the point. That's what we sing to God for because who he is is totally different than anyone or anything else you have ever experienced, anything, anyone you've ever known. So we praise him for who he is, but we also praise him for what he's done. We also sing about what he did, how Jesus was the Lamb who was slain, the King who conquered the grave. What better orients us to what we're doing than thinking about who God is and what He's done? So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to continue to look at God's Word. This is His Word. Because of that, we're going to look at it. We're going to let it teach us, guide us and direct us in how we live, what we do, how we think. We're going to give it the highest authority as it rightly deserves. Uh, before we go there, I'm going to uh, share with you some really, really exciting news, something I'm going to be sharing more with you about next week. But we officially have our youth group organized, and we are praising God. Yeah, um, we're praising God. This is happening. Not, it's happening because some of you guys had the Lord laid this on our heart. I didn't mention it or anything. I, I got a little bit excited about it happening, but um, some of you guys uh, heard the Lord lead and you, you, you acted, and I'm just praising God for uh, your obedience and your, your faithfulness and your submission to Him. And so not this Friday, but the next Friday, we're going to be starting youth group. Uh, information in the bulletin, uh, more on that next week. So excited to share that with you. And then finally, as Charlotte said, membership next week. Um, you don't have to become a member to come to the class. If today's your first week ever here and you just want to know more about what we, who we are as a church, what it means to follow Christ together with us. Love to have you. And that's going to be down there in the nursery classroom before church. I believe it's at 8.30. Again, bulletin is the place to go for that. Acts 13. That's where we are. And as you're turning there, let me, let me bring you up to speed on where we're at in the book of Acts. The book of Acts starts at the beginning, as you'd expect. Uh, chapter 1, verse 8. And this is what Jesus says to his church. The first words, or the, sorry, the last words... That Jesus says to his disciples, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Okay, 
This is the marching orders that Jesus gives to his church, but it's also, as we study the book of Acts, the table of contents for everything that we've seen so far. Because what happens in the very next chapter? They receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Acts chapter 2. Going on from there, all the way from 2, all the way through 7, the witness of Jesus Christ, the story of the gospel, goes around Jerusalem. And then chapters 8 through 12, the mission continues into Judea and Samaria. And now today, in chapter 13, we are taking the final turning point of the book of Acts as we turn not from Judea, uh, Jerusalem, or Judea, Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. This, in other words, is the last main turning point as we walk through the book of Acts. And what we see in the book of Acts is that the centripetal growth of the church happens exactly the way that Jesus Christ said it would through the Holy Spirit-empowered Spirit witness of his people. And that's what happens today. Acts chapter 13. We're starting, as Charlotte said, in the last verse of chapter 12 and going through 13, 11. This is Paul's first missionary journey. And that's where we are. We see Paul and Barnabas selected for the mission of God, sent on the mission of God, and supplied with power for the mission of God. Selected, sent, supplied. And as we dive in, we're going to see and ask and wonder and wrestle with what it means for us to be selected, sent, and supplied for the mission that God has given us in our lives. All right. Let me pray for us, and we'll get moving. Oh, God. Um... I don't want to get up here and, and to open your word and to preach your word just so that we can learn more about it in our heads. Um, my deepest desire, uh, your, I know, is also your deepest desire that these words wouldn't just go in our heads, but they would shape our hearts. I'm humbled by the fact, God, that I can't do that by my power. Josh can't do that with his worship leading skill. Um, Charlie can't do that by leading us in the call to worship alone. All of us who have been serving today have been trying to do that so that you could use, by the power of your Holy Spirit, could work a change in us. In other words, we're dependent upon you, Lord. If any change happens from anything that's said or sung this morning, it's because your Holy Spirit did a work, not us. But Father, use me as your tool. Use Josh as your tool as he comes back up here to sing a little bit later. And may the result of today be a deeper love for you, a deeper delight in you, a reorientation towards you, a commitment to live for you, a humility to see blind spots, weaknesses, whatever it might be, so that we can turn and make our lives more glorifying to you, God. That's the whole purpose that we exist. Give us joy in the process. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The era of Peter is over. We see Peter one more time in chapter 15, just a few verses, but right now we're starting to look at a man named Paul. Still called Saul, but he's going to start being called Paul uh, in, in the midst of these passages. And what we see is not just Paul, but also Barnabas going out on the first missionary journey that we read in the book of Acts. But let me bring you up to speed with what we know about Paul and Barnabas. And I'm going to do this really fast because I missed my calling as an auctioneer. And so this is where we're going. First, we're looking at Saul. This is what we know. In Acts chapter 7, we meet Saul, and he's working in the courtroom, or the coat room at the murder of Stephen. He's there watching over the coats, uh, giving approval for what's happening to the death of 
of Stephen. In chapter 8, we see that Paul takes up the mantle of the great persecution of the church. And it says in 8, chapter 3, that Saul was ravishing the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Then in chapter 9, we see that Paul is continuing on in his mission to persecute the church, to kill it, to get rid of it. And he's on his way to Damascus. And on his way, chapter, three, uh, chapter 9, verse 3 tells us that suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. We continue to see that Saul, he falls to the ground blind. And when he gets back up, his eyes, though open, cannot see. And he has to ask for somebody to lead him by the hand and bring him to Damascus. Damascus. Now, when he's there, a man named Ananias gets a vision from the Lord, sending him to Damascus to go and get Saul, help open his eyes, and send him forward on his mission. This is what God says to Ananias. He says that Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. God has a plan for Saul. And then by the end of chapter 9, we read this in verse 22, that Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 28, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed with the Hellenists. In other words, the great persecutor of the church became the great preacher of the church. The Jews did not like that. They tried to shut him up. They tried to kill him. But the people, who are the brothers and sisters of Christ in Damascus, rescued Saul, letting him down through a wall and sending him off to Tarsus, his hometown, until chapter 11, where Barnabas goes and brings him back to help him teach in Antioch. That's Saul. What about Barnabas? Here's what we know about Barnabas. I'll go fast as well. Acts chapter 4, 36 and 37, what we read is that a man named Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which is a nickname, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, remember that, sold a field and that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it before the apostles. This is when we meet Barnabas. It's a good first impression. We meet him a little bit later as well in chapter 9 after Saul comes to Jerusalem. Barnabas is the one that says that meets Saul and advocates for him, introducing him to the apostles, saying, hey, this guy's the real deal. He saw Jesus. Now he's working and to spread the gospel, not to destroy the gospel. Their relationship forms at this time. After this, uh, Barnab- we read about Barnabas again in Acts chapter 11 when he's going to Antioch to see the beautiful things that God is doing there. And what he does at that point is he goes to Tarsus, takes Saul, says, brother, come back with me. Let's teach this church in Antioch. And they teach for a year in Antioch. So that is what we know about Saul and Barnabas. And the last we heard about them at the end of chapter 11 is that Saul and Barnabas were chosen to bring the relief to the church in Jerusalem. Perhaps it was money or food, but they were chosen by the church in Antioch to be the ones who brought the resources to this church who was about to experience a famine. And that's the last we've heard. But now, Acts chapter 12, verse 25 on the screen, we read this. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. All right. Saul and Barnabas bringing the relief to Jerusalem, now returning back to this beautiful, multi-ethnic, multiplying, maturing, and merciful church in Antioch, bringing with them John Mark, uh, 
it was his mom's house where Rhoda, the whole Rhoda debacle happened. Um, so this is a small church still. And he's going to follow along with them, learn in their wake, and join them in their ministry. Now let me read Acts chapter 13, 1 through 3, our passage today. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. He's going to list them now. Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius the Cyrene, of Cyrene, uh, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay. So we're back in Antioch. The church is worshiping. We see that they are fasting, that they are praying. In other words, they're doing what a church does. Fixing their eyes on the God of the universe and praising Him as the God that He is submitting themselves to Him. And we're not told exactly how this happened, but somehow the Holy Spirit spoke to this church. It might have been a voice from heaven. It might have come through one of these people called here a prophet. We don't know. But what we do know is that He said this, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. The Holy Spirit selected Saul and Barnabas for a specific task at a specific time. Now, if, you're, if you've been a part of church circles for any period of time, I'm sure you've heard of the, of, of, of the word being called for something to be... Uh, uh, that, that language is common in the church. That if, you are, if, if the Lord has put a calling on your life, that's what it means. You have been called to a, you've been selected for a specific task at a specific time. God could call you to one thing for a certain period of time. He could call you to another thing for another period of time. The point of it is that it is God. It is the Spirit who is selecting you for that specific task. And what we see in this passage is that the church responds to this calling from the Lord like this. It says that after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. God selects God calls, but the Spirit is involved. Fasting, praying, also laying on hands. And the laying on of hands here is just a symbolic way for God's people to publicly recognize and confirm that someone has been selected for and prepared for a particular task. It's a way of the church community coming around somebody who believes that they might be called to say, yes, we believe that too. We're with you. We're behind you. This isn't just some wild dream that you've drum, dreamt up on your own. The church is confirming the Holy Spirit's selection. So the Spirit selects here. The church is involved. The church confirms. And as the kingdom advances, what's clear to us right from the beginning is that God is the one at the helm of this ship. As the mission of God continues, it is God who is steering, guiding, directing His church, directing His mission by the work of the Holy Spirit with them. And now still today, we, we talk like this, right? We talk about calling, saying that we feel called to something, selected for a specific task by God at a specific time. And uh, I think that at, in, at its core, this is a good, beautiful thing. Because when we talk about the calling of the Lord, it's inherently honoring to God. To say that we're called to a particular task is a way of saying that we are at uh, we are under uh, the authority of a caller. To say that we believe we've been called to something means that somebody else has the highest authority and is telling us 
what to do. That mindset, putting God in the place where he has the right to determine what we do, that's honoring to him, that, that blesses him. It's a submissive posture because the calling comes from God to us and not the other way around. And, and you know, I, I believe that God still does that in, in the church today, that God still selects, still calls people to various tasks. Um, he might call people to leave one location to go to another location, uh, uh, like missions, uh, missionaries who go to other places to bring the gospel where it isn't. He calls people to official roles of ministry, like pastors are working in a, in a parachurch. But I also believe that God calls individual Christians to minor, uh, not minor, actually, not minor at all, but smaller, more manageable steps of obedience. Uh, helping coach the soccer team. Uh, building a deeper relationship with your neighbor. These are steps of obedience that God calls his people to do. He is steering the ship. And we are seeking to be humbly submissive to how he leads. Praise God. Praise God if anybody wants to hear God's calling and wants to submit to that. That's a beautiful thing. But for anybody who's been in the church for any period of time, you're not only familiar with the beauty of the idea of calling, but also some of the struggles around the idea of calling. Because when we talk about calling, we have to remember that discerning the call of the Lord is a notoriously difficult thing to do. <laughs> we all want to know, everybody who's, who's made Jesus their king, master, Lord, wants to know what God has for their life, but how do you know? How do you figure out the call that God has put on your life? It's notoriously hard because few of us, at least in our church tradition, uh, would claim to have uh, said that they have heard an audible voice from the Lord telling them what to do. I know that many people pray and ask the Lord to give them that kind of direction so that they can move forward with confidence. And what tends to happen when it's hard to understand exactly how the Lord is calling, how He is leading, is that the idea of calling can tend to handicap us from walking in obedience more than actually helping us walk in obedience. Does that ring a bell to any of you guys? I know it does for me. And I think that the thing that makes it so incredibly hard is the way that we go about discerning the call of the Lord. How do we try, how do we typically try to discern where the Lord is, is leading us. It seems to me that most of the time when we try to figure out the Lord's calling, we listen to the inner urgings of the Spirit, right? We, we wait to feel nudges from the Holy Spirit. We wait for doors to swing open of their own accord. We, we, we look at the burdens that God has put on our hearts. We look at the passions that He's given us. We take inventory of the giftings that he's given to us. We, we, we look at how he's guiding and directing our steps already, and all that is good. But here's the typical mistake. That typically, as we sense inner urgings and wrestle with the nudgings of the Spirit, we wrestle through what those mean on our own. And that's the mistake. And what we see in this church, in the church in Antioch, is that as they hear this calling from the Spirit, apparently a, a little bit more of a clear calling, with the actual voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to them, what we see is that this church responds to the call in a way that is not only biblically faithful, but also just dripping with wisdom. Because the church is involved with it. 
After this call happens, after it seems that God selects, the church is involved by fasting, by praying, by laying hands on them, confirming and saying, yes, we've heard this too. We agree as well. We agree that God has put a call on your life to go and do this thing. And that's what it should look like for us as well. When we're wrestling with the question of how do we know what God is calling us to, I want to urge you, don't try to figure that out on your own. God's given you a family, a family of people who know you, a family of people who know your strengths and weaknesses, who can help you and pray with you and even fast with you to figure out what the right step for you is as you seek to live in, within the will of the Lord. And I'll, I'll share just my own story very briefly. I, um, I came out of, of undergrad and I was thinking, you know, I, I think I want to go into ministry. But at the same time, man, I... I uh, horrified of, of the idea of being a pastor. And I didn't want to have to preach every week. And uh, I didn't want to have to go to seminary and, and learn dead languages. And like, there's a lot of things that made me think like, I don't know about this. But you know what God did do? He gave me a heart for the church, the local church. What God showed me was like, man, I, I, I long for, I have a passion for the health of the local church as the essential place through which the universal church will grow and flourish. God put that on my heart. All that was individual. So I went to my mentor in Michigan, Pat, and I shared it with him. I went to my pastor in Michigan, Kevin, and I shared it with him. And from the very little they knew about me, uh, at, we only had a year together, they said, you know what, that fits. Go for it. So I went to seminary. When I was at seminary, I got involved in a church out in Pepperell, Massachusetts, and during that time there, it was continuing to be clear to me that God was leading me and gifting me in ways that did fit the local church ministry. So I went to my elders. I was 28. I went to my elders, and I said, is this presumptuous for me? I mean, I'm 28 years old. I've, I've preached four times. Um, I... I um, I don't have the wisdom that you guys have. Is it presumptuous for me to try to apply for a lead pastor position? And they said, you know what? We see this in you. Go for it. So I contacted Sam. We met a couple times, three times, four times. And he said, you know what? Let me introduce you to Chris. I met with Chris. He said, let me introduce you to the other pastors. The pastors met with me. They gave me the thumbs up. They passed me on to the elders and some of the ministry team leaders here. That small group of people gave me the thumbs up and brought me here for three weeks. At the end of those three weeks of meeting you guys and preaching for you guys, you voted and decided to let me come and lead as the pastor. The process of me becoming the pastor of this church was a process not only of my internal longings and beliefs and nudges, but a process of a long line of people saying, yeah, we confirm that. We see that in you. We believe that God has called you to this. And if we could put the next slide up here on the screen, this is the Sunday that I became the pastor here. I sat right here, and you laid your hands on me. You prayed for me. This church did for me what the church in Antioch was doing for Barnabas and Saul. They said, you know what? We see this in you. We are going to confirm it. We are going to pray for you. And we're going to give you the opportunity to serve in the way that we too believe God is leading you to serve. That's been my story. And I do believe that I've been called to pastor this church at this time and for as long as I can foresee them into the future. But that's not a decision I made alone. 
And I want to encourage you, as you're seeking the call of the Lord, the, the, the leading of the Lord, do not make that decision alone. If the Spirit is selecting you, involve the church in confirming and even celebrating that. Don't make the final decision. Bring it to your family. Bring them your desires, your burdens, your giftings. And together, allow the Spirit to speak and to lead. That's my first encouragement for you. Now we're going to keep going. Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 6. Let me read just the next couple verses. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they uh, proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. That's John Mark. And when they had gone through the whole island of Paphos, they came upon a certain magician sorry, the whole island as far as Paphos. They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Okay, I don't know how your Middle Eastern uh, geography is. Let me, let me put the map up here on the screen. I'll explain to you exactly what's going on. They went from Antioch to the closest port town, Seleucia, 16 miles southwest. From there, they sailed 130 miles to the island of Cyprus. That's probably the one place we all know uh, where it, that is. And they docked at the port of Salamis. Now, from there, we read in verse 6 that they had gone uh, through the whole island. Hence that squiggly line. They went around the island, eventually landing in the city of Paphos. That's where they are. And that's a 90-mile journey as the crow flies from from the, the port where they landed, the port of Salamis, to the town of Paphos. So we don't know how long this journey took. People have guesses. Nobody really knows. But the thing about Paphos is that Paphos is the Roman seat of the island. It's the capital. It's the place where uh, political power resided. The thing I want to notice, though, about this whole passage uh, that we just looked through is just a, a seemingly insignificant detail right at the beginning. In the first couple words, what we saw was that not only did the Holy Spirit select, now we're seeing in verse 4 that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the Holy Spirit selected, the church was involved in confirming, and now the Holy Spirit sent, sent them down to Seleucia. But at the same time, in verse 3, we just read in church, verse 3, I don't have it here, but we read there that after fasting and praying, the church, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Who sent? Was it the Spirit? Or was it the church? And this might sound just like an incidental detail, like it really doesn't matter. But again, what I'm, what I'm seeing here and what I think Luke is trying to help us see, the, the author, is that the Spirit of God and the people of God are working together to accomplish the mission of God. It's the Spirit of God and the church that are selecting and confirming that selection. It's the Spirit of God and the people of God that are both sending this church, these missionaries together out into the world to do the mission that God has given them to do. It's the Spirit that sends, going with them, going before them, and it's the church that sends as well. Only the church stands behind them. The church stands behind them, sending and supporting them through prayer and through other means of support. And uh, this is the story of anybody who's a missionary. Very few missionaries are self-funded. <laughs> Very few mission, missionaries... Uh, well, it's not just the money part. It's also the fact that if God is going to do what God is going to do through their mission, they need the church to pray. And the most famous story from the history of the church, at least uh, that I know of, is the story of a missionary named William Carey, 1793. 
He's one of the first missionaries to go out from England, and he went all the way down to India, and he spent 40-plus years in India doing ministry there where nobody uh, was preaching the gospel. But before he went, he was going around to churches, and he was garnering support and prayer, and he was talking with his friend by the name of Andrew Fuller, um, another famous pastor from that, from that era, era. And William Carey said to Andrew Fuller back in England, he said, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the rope. And it's, it's, a, it's such a pregnant illustration because you can see that. You can see somebody struggling, struggling to hold a human weight, letting them down into the pit so that they can help them do the task that God had given them to do. I think it's a beautiful picture because it shows not only the sacrifice that William Carey was making, but also the struggle and the strain that the church back in England was willing to make to help make that ministry, that mission's work, possible. The church in England labored alongside Carey, albeit from thousands of miles away, by supporting, praying for, raising money for the work that Carey was doing for 40-plus years in India. And his legacy lives on as a faithful missionary bringing the gospel to a dark place. Because the Spirit sends, going with them, going before them. But we also see here that the church sends, standing behind. I think that we as a church, we had an opportunity pretty recently to practice that with John, William, and Kimmy. We, we invited them up here. We laid our hands on them. We prayed for them. And we didn't send them off uh, and dust our hands off from them. We... we we're not done with those people. <laughs> I've, got, I've got my list of, of church members that I pray through continually. They're still on the list because they're a part of us. We've sent them, but we're holding their rope. Let's, let, let's have this be a reminder for us to pray for John, William, and Kimmy as they try to get across that border <laughs> uh, into Canada with all this COVID stuff going on. Continue to pray for them as they continue to try to raise support and finish up that's, that's that section of their work down in Florida. We love them. We believe in them. We've laid our hands on them. Let's hold that rope. So that's my first encouragement. The Spirit selects. The church is involved. And the second encouragement, the Spirit sends. And the church is involved as well, holding the rope. And the last thing that we need to see is in the last part of this passage. So let's open up again one more time. Acts 13, 6 through 12. Acts 13, 6 through 12. Now when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul, and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, because everyone needs two names in this book, filled by the Holy Spirit, looked intentionally at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. 
Then the borough consul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the miracle of the Lord. No, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So Saul and Barnabas, they come to Paphos, they meet this magician, this Jewish false prophet. Um, I can't tell you exactly what that means. Uh, did Jews believe in magicians? It seemed like this was a weird uh, mix of pagan and Jewish religion. But what's clear is that this man had the ear of the proconsul. The proconsul, that's, that's a title. His name was Sergius Paulus. He was a Roman. Uh, but the proconsul was the highest ranking official in a Roman province. So this man was the most powerful man likely on the entire island. And here he is uh, with, with this magician, Bar-Jesus or Elamus, whispering it in his ear. And so this proconsul, we also read about him, is that he was a man of, his intel- of intelligence. And somehow he caught wind of the message that Saul and Barnabas were teaching in these synagogues as they went from town to town. So he summons them to him to hear the word of God. That's what it says. He's interested in what they have to say. But Bar-Jesus, he opposes them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. That's what it says here. And many people think, probably correctly, that the reason why he was opposed to the message of Jesus Christ wasn't only on grounds of his Jewish faith, but also on grounds of not wanting to lose the power that he had as having the ear of the proconsul being an influencer of the most influential uh, person of the entire island. He opposes the word of God. And this is a spiritual battle. Because he's not opposing Paul. This isn't Paul or Saul versus Bar-Jesus. This is the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. And so Saul fights, and he fights hard. (laughs) He's not kind. Again, this is what he says. Saul, who was also called Paul, it's the same name, just the Romanized version of it. We'll call him Paul from now on, because that's what we tend to do. (laughs) Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him. By the hand. So the Spirit selected Saul and Barnabas. The church confirmed it. The Spirit sent Saul and Barnabas. And the church was involved as well at their backs. But now the Spirit of God is supplying Paul and Barnabas. The Spirit is selecting, sending, and supplying. Because after all, Saul's, Paul speaks here. But it's not his power. It says here in verse 9 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul strikes this man blind, but once again, it's not by his power. It says in verse 11, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And what this does is it reminds us one more time that the mission that they are doing is selected, sent, and supplied by the power of the Holy Spirit. That Paul is supplied with everything he needs to do the mission that God has given them. And when we look at Paul and we see the amazing things that he did, I think that it's a reminder to us that Saul, Paul, I'm going to have an issue with, with names. Paul, 
is exactly like us. He's not a magician. He doesn't have any more of a dose of the Holy Spirit than we have. Saul is equipped to do this amazing work, to teach in this amazing way, because he has the Holy Spirit, and he's got the message of Jesus Christ. That's it. He is supplied with everything he needs to do his ministry, and if you have the Holy Spirit, if you have the message of Jesus Christ, you are supplied with everything that you need to do the ministry that God has selected you for, to do the ministry that God has sent you to do. And that can be hard to believe because you might think to yourself, well, I can't do miracles. Well, frankly, Paul couldn't either. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the power of the living God living within him that's striking this magician blind who was opposing the gospel so that he had to seek about for somebody to lead him by the hand. And incidentally, that's exactly what happened to Paul back in chapter 7. He was opposing the gospel. He was struck blind and he had to ask for somebody to lead him about by the hand. That's not a coincidence. It's reminding us that the one who has the power to do these things is not Paul. It's not any man. It's the Holy Spirit living within man who believes. Because these miracles, they're impressive. They they get attention. But the thing that leads the proconsul ultimately to believe said so clearly and beautifully in verse 12 is not the miracles that Paul does, but the message Paul proclaims. Verse 12, Then the proconsul believed when he saw that had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The miracles shocked him, but Paul used that to point him to the message. Just like Jesus. Doing these miracles to grab attention... To, he, to, to gain people's ears so that we can proclaim the message, so that he could proclaim the message of who he is and what he had done. And if you have the Holy Spirit inside you, you might not be able to do miracles. He can if he chooses. But if you have the message of Jesus Christ inside you, if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you, you have everything Paul had. And that's not my way of saying that there is no purpose, no place for being further equipped for the mission that God has given you. Uh, God might select you to do something that requires you to continue uh, to grow in particular skills, to be equipped for that task. I'm in no way downplaying that. But the point is that God uses all sorts of things, all sorts of people, by the power of His Holy Spirit, to do the work that He wants to do. God uses all things in in the life of the church as well to catch people's attention so that we can point them to the message of the gospel. Here, miracles are used to do that. But in our lives and in the lives of our church and the church today, more often it's the kindness of the church, the mercy of God's people that does not save but shocks the world and gives us a chance to point people to the message. Sometimes it's the way that we respond to tragedy and to death and to suffering that does not in itself save but shocks the world and gives us a chance to point people towards Jesus Christ. Maybe it's our selflessness or, 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 um, or the family nature of a church family that shocks people. It doesn't save in itself, but it gives us an opportunity to point them towards the one who has made us a family. And sometimes it's the opportunities that we have through conversation to explain 
the difficult things we believe. It's what the church has often called apologetics. It doesn't save you. But it gives us the opportunity to answer questions, to remove barriers so that we can point people towards the Lord. The reality is there is only one thing that can truly lead someone to faith, to eternal life, to believe. And it is not the miracles, it is not the works that we do, it is the message of Jesus Christ. And so this is my prayer for our church and as, we, as we come to the end of today. My prayer is that you would leave today reminded of who is steering this ship, of who is empowering this mission that we are on, that we would be reminded that God is the one who selects, that if he is calling us to a specific task at a specific time, then we as a church can come around to encourage, to pray for you, to help you discern and to lay our hands upon you. That God is the one who sends us out, leading us as we go. Oh, Christian church, let's band together as we do. And finally, that God is the one who supplies us, giving us what we need at every moment to do the task that he has given us to do. Oh, church, let's depend on him to do what only he can do in and through us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's, um, it's another... It's another humbling passage for us. Um, to know and to remember that you've called us to live in, in a world where you, you gave us a job, you gave us a mission. You, you called us to go and, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, bear witness. To be a community of people who live in the community in such a way that shows people the way of Jesus so that we can share with them that message. But Father, I'm reminded yet again today by looking at my life and looking at this passage that this mission is impossible without you. We're dependent. God, we need you. We are weak. We are limited. But we serve a limitless God. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give, uh, give us the strength that we need to do your work even when we feel our weakness. And you would soften the hearts of the people in our lives so that we can offer them the love of Jesus in deed and word. And I pray, Father, that new life would come and that you would receive more praise and more glory as more people call you Lord. So God, we love you. We praise you. We are yours. We pray this in Jesus' name.